Amen. All right. Well, I want to start by just reading to us a prophetic word uh, that we received uh, about two months ago from someone that's part of our community here. And this person brought it to me and said, look, I believe this is what God is saying for us as a community. And so I've uh, taken this word to the elders. And today is quite a significant day because at the end of this month, uh, we're going to have a special one-off service at 3 p.m. where we're going to draw the morning and the night together and actually do what this word says. And so I want you to, I'm going to read this uh, to you. I'll paraphrase some of it to you. And then uh, as we go forward in October, I'm going to do it at every service. There'll be different people speaking to this. But there really is a theme, and the theme to this message is turning back to Him. Turning back to Him. And you may say, well, that's a bit weird because I think I'm turning to Him already. And that may be true. But it's so easy to be led astray. It's so easy to get distracted from Him and the intimacy of Him in the things of the world. Because the Bible says we're called to love Him with everything we are. And that word doesn't mean so much love emotionally. It means to be devoted, dedicated, connected to the one that we serve, worship, and follow. And so uh, I'm just going to read uh, four or five, five scriptures, and then we'll get into the main scripture. So the first one is Psalms 24-7. It says, Wake up, sleepyhead city. Wake up, you sleepyhead people. King of glory is ready to enter. Isaiah 50, verse 4. The sovereign Lord has given me an instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He awakens me morning by morning, awakens my ear to listen like one being taught. I love that. Listen as one being taught. Daniel 12.3 Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If you just take those two things, that's why it's not just about turning up here on a Sunday and being passive. It's about receiving week in, week out the depth of what's being taught, not just here, but in your own time and allowing that word to reproduce something in you that you can reproduce in others. Because we will be, and one of the things we talk about is you will produce what's in you. So if we're leading people, we'll be a reproducer of others what's in us. Hence the word of God is to be defining us. Mark six twelve to 13, they preach with joyful urgency that life can be radically different. Right and left, they sent the demons packing. They brought wellness to the sick, anointing their bodies, healing the sick. And part of the main message is in Joel two fifteen to 27, says this, Blow the ram's horn trumpet in Zion. Declare a day of repentance, a holy fast day. Call it a public meeting. Get everyone there. Consecrate the congregation. Make sure the elders come, but bring in the children too, even the nursing babies, even men and women on their honeymoon. Interrupt them and get them there between sanctuary entrance and altar. Let the priests, God's servants, weep tears of repentance. Let them intercede. Have mercy, God, on your people. Don't abandon your heritage, heritage to contempt. Don't let the pagans take over and rule them and snare. And so where is this God of theirs? Verse 18 says, And that God went into action to get his land back. He took pity on his people. God answered and spoke to his people. Look, listen, I'm sending a gift. Grain and wine and olive oil. The fast is over. Eat your fill. 
I won't expose you any longer to contempt among the pagans. I'll head off the final enemy coming out of the north and dump them in the wasteland. Half of them will end up in the Dead Sea, the other half in the Mediterranean. They'll rot a stench to high heaven. The bigger the enemy, the stronger the stench. And then it goes on and just talks about how God is going to restore some things. That's what I love about the fathers. When we come as his people and we acknowledge some things and we turn to him, the outworking of that is dynamic. God just doesn't leave you down in this necessarily this broken state. He takes that heart humility. He then turns it around and then he, can, he says, come on, let's go and actually activate this thing. It's like that. That's why when we live our lives and we, you know, we, we, we mess up a quick uh, heart uh, and it's not about the amount, it's just that God sees the heart of coming back to him. We come straight back into alignment. But it takes an act of repentance or a turning back to him, firstly. And then the person goes on, it speaks about myself. And I won't so much go into that, but it reaffirms. And if you have been part of us for the last two years, I used the word dismantling. And I said that God was gonna, had been dismantling me. Dismantling my thinking, not all of it, but uh, some of it. Dismantling how the church is to be built. Uh, how he builds his church, not man. And uh, God took me through a process. And then I said uh, that he was going to dismantle the rock, which means me and you. And, uh, you know, that means we're all going to go through this process. It's funny how people think, oh, yeah, it's just about you. That's right. You need to be dismantled, but I don't. But then he's going to, and he has been dismantling us, dismantling some of the thinking, not the core foundations, but maybe how things happen, uh, things in our own hearts, certain mindsets that we have. And the person acknowledges this without even knowing uh, this because this person wasn't part of our community when I was sharing this stuff. And then the person, once again, just talks about my role in this. It says, you lead us and train us how to live as citizens of heaven with instructed words from God that will refresh and nourish us. But the us is to become more than the rock community. And I believe God is saying it is time to begin constructing the new church with him. This is not a reconstruction, but a new construction for the last days we are entering. New Zealand is to be a church that is a seed pod church that the wind of the Holy Spirit will blow out over the face of the earth. God will redeem our New Zealand pioneering spirit from self-sufficiency and send his Kiwi children out to spread the word and birth new ministries that will save the widows and the orphans. And we will be placed in governance in foreign lands just as Joseph was in Egypt. Then the person goes on and talks about some of the work that the enemy's been doing to try and stop this. And they had a vision at Mountain Movers regarding this very thing. And that the more God's people come into the greater depth of reality of God's truth, it awakens a, a certain, I just call it a certain depth of opposition. And there's an understanding that we need to come to there. I remember Tark saying, you know, the, the deeper the level you go, the greater the, the, the oppression that comes from the enemy. Because there's a war going on. You know, we can live our lives totally oblivious to actually the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light and the war that is actually going on. And the enemy's role, as we've talked about, and we're going to look at today, is to deceive us and to lead us astray from coming into the reality of who we are in him and the purposes that he has for the church. That's his whole mission. And it's, so that's the scripture we're going to look at, and this person talks about this. And then it says, I see God's first... Po um, Po, um, poised, thank you. All right. Poised over above Wellington. And I believe God wants to awaken the sleepy headed church in New Zealand. He wants to start with the rock. 
and he wants uh, me to sound a trumpet and gather the people of the rock as Joel did. Verse 15 again, blow the ram's horn trumpet in Zion. Declare a day of repentance, a holy fast day. Call a public meeting. Get everyone there. Consecrate the congregation. And it goes so on. Then it says, then God will smash through the indifference and false comfort here in the New Zealand church and fire his people up and reconstruct the church using your words and your training to lead the people. He will give his New Zealand church grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then a person says that, me again, I believe you are to literally and physically sound the trumpet to awaken New Zealand church. Now I'll just, I just saw it just came to me now, what you wouldn't have realized when David Peters was with us two weeks ago, and David has a, a, a prophetic office gift, we were in and getting in on a Friday morning with the staff and he just started giving test, uh, prophecy over us. He knew none of this and he basically, and the staff will tell you this, he basically said these words. It's incredible. Um, and then it says, so I'm to, I'm to blow this trumpet. Um, God is poised, ready to act. God has heard the cry of the widows and the orphans across the face of the earth and is ready to deliver them through New Zealanders going out as seed pods, pioneering faith and righteous governance and deliverance. And so we're going to be doing this on the 28th of October. And so we're going to use this whole month just to start speaking. And everyone that's going to be speaking will be speaking on this whole theme. And I just want to call us to this word and I want to uh, in, encourage you on you to put it in your diary and if you're part of this community so I'm going to be there I'm coming with faith I'm coming to believe and to me this is a positive word you know so often we can hear this word repentance turn to him and we can just go oh man what a negative word that is it's a positive word it's a life-giving word everything God does is about transformation and change and life to bring us into a greater reality you can't just come into a greater reality. You have to turn and look towards Him. And so it's part of the process of receiving. You think about it. When we were non-Christians, you had to turn, you had to repent, you had to come to God, didn't you? You had to have to go from here to here. It's no different as His people. If you read Scripture, you take Scriptures, look at the Old Testament. Today I lay before you this and this. And if you do, it's curse and blessing. And if you live like that, there'll be a curse. But if you live like that, there'll be a blessing. But if you live like a curse, in a moment in time, if you turn back to me, I will bring you back into the blessing. And so we can live like that as his people. You believe me? Good. So come with me to 2 Corinthians 11, 1 to 4. And I've just called this coming back to him. You know, in the last month, we've been talking about sonship and is, uh, that's been awesome. And, um, you know, the whole depth of there that we're coming into. 2 Corinthians 11.4. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read the whole thing out and then I'm just going to break it down verse by verse, the, the four verses. Give me a yell when you've got your iPads and your iPhones and your written word. I don't know, all these modern technology is cool, but I can't beat this thing. Because I write in it, and you know, you have, I've got multicolored letters and all sorts of stuff going on. It's that funny thing, I don't know about you, you know, you, you, know where, you, you may not know quite the scripture, but you know where it is on the page. You found that? It's about the top right hand corner of this thing I'm looking for. You can't get that in an iPad, can you? 
All those iPad people, iPad people said, <laughs> yes, you can. You can draw fancy diagrams on all those things. Okay, we there? Okay, 2 Corinthians 11. What I love about this is the title, Paul Defends His Apostleship. Paul Defends His Apostleship. There were some people in the church that thought Paul was a deceiver. You know that? He says, I am known to some and unknown to others. A deceiver to some. The Apostle Paul. That's interesting, isn't it? I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness. But indeed you are bearing with me. Verse 2. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband. So that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Verse 4. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Mm. You bear this beautifully. You put up with it. You maybe even allow it into your thinking. So verse 1, come back to verse 1. Paul says, I wish that you would bear with me a little foolishness. And I'm going to ask that of you today. I'm going to ask that you bear with me a little of my foolishness. Some of the things you hear today, you might go, God, Greg, we've already talked about that. We've already discussed some of these things, and that is going to be true. And the two questions I want to ask, or one question is just, well, yeah, we're going to, but have you allowed that to define you? The stuff and the stuff we're going to talk about, what difference has it made in your life? Because we can hear it and never hear it. Or we can listen and it just goes in one ear and straight out the other by the time we've got out that door. But the Word of God is to be changing us, transforming us. As we renew our minds, we're coming into greater understanding who He is and who we are. And Paul is saying, you know, I've got some stuff for you. There's some stuff that I want to talk to you about today. He's saying this to the Corinthians, and I really want you to bear with me because it may sound foolish. You may think you already understand it all, but I'm seeing some things and understanding some things and I don't necessarily think you Corinthians are. So would you bear with me and just open up and just listen again maybe because you've done it before with me and I'm asking you to do it with me again. And then he goes into verse 2. He says, For I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. You see, this isn't an earthly, worldly jealousy. This is a good kind of jealousy. He says, I'm jealous for you. It's a good kind. It's like the type of jealousy that a parent has for a child. That a parent wants to see his, uh, the, their children come into everything that the, the, the parent has for them. The parent is so jealous, they want to see their child engage and, and, and be empowered to be the person and to live out and to come into the full reality of who the child's going to be. They're jealous to see that happen. 
They lay, the parent will lay their life down to see that reality come to fruition, won't they? It's that type of jealousy. It's not a self-centered jealousy. It's not a worldly jealousy that wants to constrict and bind that's centered in insecurity. It's a free kind of jealousy. He said, I'm jealous for you. I'm jealous that you would be the church that, that I know we're called to be. I'm jealous that you would imitate me as I imitate the Christ. I'm jealous that you would understand what was paid for and bought for at the cross. I'm jealous that the church would be the church on planet earth that the Bible speaks of. That the glory of God would come through her. That's what I'm jealous for. I'm jealous for you to be all you can be in Him. And it drove Him. He was obsessed with seeing God's church birth on the earth and ignited and for people to come alive. That's the type of jealousy He's talking about. He says, come on, come on, there's a war going on and there's an enemy that's trying to stop us becoming and entering into everything God has for us. And he's subtle and he roars around like a lion, but he's a quiet lion. Because if he was big like a big lion, it'd be so obvious that you'd notice him, but he's not. But he is, but he isn't. He's come to lead you astray from something. From the simplicity and the pure devotion to this person called Jesus Christ. I'm jealous and I'm laying my life down and I'm living a life to try and help others see something. It's a selfless jealousy. It's a type of jealousy that understands it can't force the issue. It can't make anybody do anything. All it can do is speak forth the reality and model it in the hope. It's a jealousy that actually allows itself to be persecuted for others to come into a reality. You think about Paul's life. That's what a true father of the faith is. It's not someone that's gray here that plants churches and actually loves everybody. That may be part of who they are, but go read the scripture in Corinthians. The context before that is what tells you what a father is. And a father is someone that's jealous to see the church come into everything she's called for, will stand in the way and take hits like a proper true father does for his children and take stuff in the hope that the children come into a reality. And they stand there in the front of opposition. This is who Paul was. That's the model of who he was. And this is what he's saying here to the church. I'm so jealous. But there is this enemy that's robbing you from something. And it can be so subtle you don't even know it's happening. Because you think or you think you're already there. You've already arrived. But he says, I'm seeing another thing. I'm seeing a greater reality. And I'm going to speak it. Fourth, he says then I, that I might present you as a pure virgin. That I might. Not that you are, that I might present you. Interesting, eh? He's speaking to the Corinthian church. These are believers that he's talking to. He's not talking to the lost world. He's talking to the church. What does Revelation 19.7 say? 
I spent eight weeks talking about the bride of Christ. Who can encourage me and tell me what Revelation 19 verse 7 says? I'm going home if we can't. <laughs> it says this, that the bride has made herself ready. The key word is made herself ready. It's a process of preparation. I'm afraid that you've been deceived from actually making yourself ready, coming into the simplicity and the fullness of what it means to know Him. That you think you're already there, you think you've already arrived. It's not automatic. It's a process that you're on, being made into, that I might present you. Question for us. At the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians, Romans, it's in four areas of the Bible. At that judgment seat, will you and I be found ready? Will we be found to be made ready? It's a question, isn't it? It's a challenging question. It's a question that challenges me every day. Why is it even there? Is an interesting question. If it's just about receiving, receiving Christ as my Lord and Savior, what on earth is there a judgment seat for? To determine some things. And he's going, you know what? I'm afraid that the enemy has subtly led you astray from what's contained in here and the fullness of what is in here. And uh, I'm going to even use an example of uh, the gospel message. I'm going to read you some stuff today about the gospel and the difference between a man-centered gospel and a God-centered gospel. And which gospel message have we even heard and what gospel message have we even um, bought into? Let me just find this passage again. Verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What does the Bible say? Where does transformation, the renewing, happen? The mind. Be transformed as you renew this. Via the Spirit. Not via the, the flesh, via the Spirit. That's what Ephesians teaches, that the mind needs to be renewed via the Spirit. Which means the mind is a gateway that either releases things or shuts things down. Things will be presented before you. Even what I'm saying today can be presented for you. And your mind can shut that down like that. That ain't true. That isn't the, my reality. That's not what I believe is true. And I'm not saying just believe what I'm saying to be true. But what I am saying to you today is keep your mind open to that might be true. So here's the tension that we must walk. If the mind is the thing that releases things or shuts things down, can we walk with our minds that say, you know what? I'm actually going to contend for that before I shut it down. Because the true understanding, the true biblical understanding starts, as we know, in the heart of a person, in the spirit. 
The spirit will receive and can receive truth and will do before the mind ever catches it. Your spirit can be fed. Man cannot live on bread alone. Your spirit can be fed things by the spirit, by his living word that your mind has not yet entertained. And then over time, as you contend with him and with others and with the word of God, what starts to happen is that living word starts to transform and starts to shift and it makes its way to the mind, which means that now the spirit has renewed the mind. But you do not renew the mind by the flesh. It's renewed via the Spirit. So that's an interesting process that we must go on. Not just go, well, well, I know. I've got it all down. That I can go and study this thing for a certain length of time. I'm into study. I'm into the Word. We have, Bible says, the mind of Christ. That must become our reality. Not just something we spit spit out. And so there is this process that God wants to take us on so His Word becomes renewed in us. And it says here that the enemy is trying to lead us in our minds astray. That's why it's so important that we understand and contend together for truth. None of us have the truth fully nailed down. If you do, I would love to meet with you and you can come and lead this place and I'll submit to you. None of us do. And we are all moving. And my question is, can we actually, is, can the church live this reality out? Can we actually contend to discover what truth is and the fullness of truth rather than get into arguments about being right and wrong? I'm right, you're wrong, so it's either my way or the highway. Jesus said it like this, I pray that you lot could be one like me and the Father are one. But 30,000 denominations later, we're still trying to figure out what truth is. And all those 30,000 believe they've got the answer. Why can't it be that the church just walks in humility, in love, because love covers, and you know what, together with the giftings, because there's five of them to start with, and then there's a whole myriad under that, we actually walk as one, as his people, to discover the greater depth of reality. Can we do that, church? That's the big question I'm asking you today as the rock. Can we actually do that? Or is it going to be about right and wrong? Is it going to be about, oh, you know what, I don't know that's the case. Can we love one another to actually live this out? Because if we can, you know what happens? A world would go, there is nothing on planet earth like that. Nobody that I know of can walk in the tension of that and love one another and reflect something. Nobody apart from God's people. Because God gives you the power of the Holy Spirit. He gives you the Word, the living Word. And He gives you this reality. He says, you know what? I paid, I cut through, not only take this nature off you, but I pay for the power of that stuff to be removed. And this is what the enemy is using to try and deceive us, to lead us astray. He comes and he tries to attack this very reality. It'll never work. Whatever. <laughs> You've seen the disunity in this thing called the church? It's everywhere. Just have a conversation. We had an interesting time at Manifest Presence and we came back and we had a dinner here last week. It was awesome, but you know what? There was incredible difference in that room. 
There were one person said this and the other person said that, and they were pole opposite different. And there was in between a whole lot of similar stuff. So the challenge is, can we walk together in love to bring on unity, allowing our minds to be transformed into one? And it says here that he's going to come and try and lead you astray right here. Mm. From the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. Anyone think it's easy to be led astray? few nervous laughters at the front. <laughs> Man, here's a, here's a new job for you. Salary's going to be up 20 grand. Might be of him, might not be of him. Man, even in the little things, you get away with that. You get away with that thing. No one will notice that. No one will notice if you just go down that pathway. What about this? Anyone? I remember, you know, there have been so many times when you decide to um, give up things. You know, when God leads you to actually give up things. And God was speaking to me about Sky, and I've shared this with you, to, 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 to give Sky back. And it was related to my gym membership. But there was also, you know, just the thing on, on this football that, I, that I've grown up with and loved. And, you know, it was like... I want you to let go of that for this season. Okay? How many people know, as soon as I make that decision, what comes through the mail? <laughs> My sky for free. <laughs> you can record all the football you want, Greg, whenever you want, and watch it whenever you want. <laughs> I entertain that. Ooh. Wow. Really? Oh, and you can save some money if you go through Vodafone. Oh, Danielle, we can actually save some money on our landline here if we buy this, buy, if we get this MySky thing. And you know, I entertained that for a week or two. Danielle, I'll tell you, I chatted to her about it. You want to make a stand? You stand, start living for righteousness and, and a lifestyle that's going to reflect Him. You'll wake someone up. Subtly, things will just start coming across your path. To be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Him. What's the greatest commandment? You know, we, we rattle that off as if, oh, yeah, I got that, I got that down. Got that down. Oh, been walking with Jesus now for 20 years. Love Him with all my heart, so I'm yeah, man. Love, love others myself. Woo! Go make disciples, yeah. I'm pumping them out. Really? Are we? Yeah, we say it like it just rolls off the tongue as if it's a plaque on the wall. But behind that statement, that word love means to be devoted, dedicated, combined, joined as one. You no longer exist in that statement is what it really means. Your life represents His, looks like His, looks like Paul's, and you're living this completely devoted lifestyle to Him. Now, has the church got that statement nailed down? No. I haven't, you haven't, none of us have. Because if we fully had, 
this world would be a completely different place. Wouldn't it? The glory of God that would be present on the earth, the signs and wonders, the generosity, the outpouring of the resource of heaven that would exist on the earth would be incredible. If we fully had that now, then we're on this journey of contending for this. And this is what Paul's saying. He says, I'm, I'm afraid that you've been led astray from what it's really about. From what it's really about. We'll chase signs and wonders because we think that's the answer. But all those things are, are a byproduct of a relationship with Him. They should follow you, the Word says. Signs and wonders will follow those who live like this. You don't go after those if you're not really living like this. Because you know what can happen? You're going to hear, Lord, Lord, I did X, Y, Z. And he's going to go, who are you? But I did all this great stuff. He goes, yep, not in my name. Well, it was in my name, but it wasn't part of me. It was part of you. Why? Because you weren't intimate with me. You didn't hang around long enough to hear my voice. You just presumed a whole lot of things. Now, there's an interesting tension in that. But what I find most fascinating about this whole passage is that Paul compares the fall of mankind to the loss of intimacy and devotion to Christ. Can you compare anything so great? The fall of Adam and Eve in the garden to the deception, the robbery of what it's really all about. That from the beginning of time, it has always been about a love relationship that will exist forever. And, and when he says, love me with all your heart, soul, mind, he literally means that. That isn't just something you can just throw out there and go, yep, got it down. No, are you, is that, are you appropriating that in your life? Because that's going to be determined. And you know what happens? When pressure is applied, you see that reality or not. You'll see exactly where the church is at when pressure is applied to the church. The Bible says that the church is to be a pillar on the earth that supports Christ. That the manifold wisdom of God would come through you and me into the heavenly realms. You know what? That the wisdom, manifold wisdom of God would be so rampant through the church that it would awaken things in the heavenly realm. A demonic realm even. And they would see something operating. You see, our purposes and God's purposes for His church are quite a bit different at times. The Bible says that Jesus is the life to all men. That He is the light to all men. And that in Him is life. It starts and ends in Him. And everything else is an outworking of Him. And it's awesome. This is why we must come back and turn. Because if we were to take an audit of my life today, what would it look like? If I was to put that love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, love others, go make disciples as a framework for which I'm going to judge my life today. And then we did an audit of Greg's sinner's life. How would it stack up to that statement? Would I be appropriating that statement because it's to be literally true and relevant in my life? Or would that audit show the true reflection of where I'm at? And God puts things in His Word to help show us a reality of where we may be at 
We may not be. We may look at that and go, man, I'm all over that thing. My whole life is dedicated to that very thing. Or is it the opposite? And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, I am so afraid that you've been led astray in your minds from the simplicity and the purity of a devoted life to Christ that will end up in a marriage that will end up in reigning with Him because you bought into something that is completely, or not completely, but half-truth. Listen to how I love, and I don't often use this version, but the message version puts it like this. This is verse 3. And now I'm afraid that exactly as the snake seduced Eve with his smooth patter, you are being lured away from the simple purity of your love for Christ. See, it's funny how the greatest commandment and the first commandment and the Ten Commandments are the same thing. Anyone find that fascinating? You shall have no other gods. Love me. You know, I don't know about you, but I used to think gods were wooden statues that man made or someone like Muhammad or, I don't know, believe in evolution. All other gods are, are priorities we place above him. So my wife can be my other god. My children can be my other god. My career. My sport. Money. Anything that I place above God, anything that my life has more value to, anything that my life I'm moving towards above Him is a God. You shall have no other gods. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for a person and a people who are devoted wholeheartedly. He said to Caleb and Joshua, you know what guys, the reason you're coming into this land is because I see a different spirit on you that was on the other ten and you wholeheartedly obeyed me. The Israelites didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. Still saved. Still Christ they were following in the wilderness. It was Christ living manna from heaven. It's all a typology. It's one complete book. It's not the old and the new. It's one complete book. Christ was in all of it, through it all. And Paul is screaming to the church. He's screaming literally, knowing that he can't force it. He can't mandate it. He can't stamp it. He's just putting it out there in the hope that the church of Corinth has ears to hear and a heart to receive and a heart to contend for a reality that he's seeing. Playing golf yesterday, Mike said this question that I'm going to blame him. It messed up my whole game on the back nine. I was, <laughs> I blew out on the back nine. But <laughs> no, it wasn't. I'm lying because it was second to last hole. But he said this. He said, do we have an appetite for him that he has for us. You know how hard that is when you're lining up your five iron? I'm like, whew. do we have an appetite for him that he has for us? Whew, what a question. He's hungry. Rewind. 
He's a father. He's jealous for you. He's jealous that you and I would come into everything that he has on offer. Isn't he? Are you and I living on everything that God has on offer? Or are we being led astray to other priorities and other things of what God has for us? Can we honestly put our hand on our heart? Can I put my hand on my heart and say, you know what? I'm living in everything God you have for me. And I'm satisfied and I'm happy. Or am I on a journey of going, I'm content, but I'm discontently content because I know there's got to be more for me. I know, God, that your word says that you actually conceal things from, uh, for me. You conceal it. You put a veneer over it. Why? Because there's something that you want me to come after you to receive. He's literally looking, holding back, going, will they come? Are they as hungry as I am for them as they are for me? And he stands back and he looks and he sees who actually pursues him. See, he's pursued us. He came down. He did everything that was possible. And then he steps back and he says, I wonder if my people will pursue me. And for those that will, there's something. And it will be determined, as I've said, at this judgment seat. Is the church any different from the world? Good. Yes, they're the same. Okay, it's interesting. When Jesus said, I will build my church, what did he mean? Is it time? I don't know. I'm putting it out there. I don't know. Is it time? And maybe it's me and maybe a couple of others to turn back to him. Get on our faces, like that word says, and have a day of repentance to turn back to him. Not to stay there. Not to stay there on your face forever, but to have a time and a moment where you come with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. You acknowledge the fact that maybe, you know what? I have been maybe led astray a little bit in these areas and my family is more important. My career is more important. It's the reality is my job is more important. My whatever is more important. My overseas travel is more important. And there is nothing wrong with those things in and amongst themselves. But if they are the priority in your life, there is something wrong. Because the Bible says, if you would seek me, my kingdom, I will add all those things that you're after. But when I add them to you now, I have redefined them because your heart has been redefined and they do not define you anymore. But so much of the church is being defined by those things and not him. This is why he's calling forth the church to turn. Will you bear with Paul and me in our foolishness to go, I'm, I'm all right. Good. But if I'm being honest, when I look at the body of Christ on a whole, in my experience here, being here since 2003, it is moving forward, but at the same time, there's a whole lot of stuff that we need to hand over to him, let go of, to come into a greater reality. Come with me to verse 4. I'm bringing it to an end, sort of. 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. So I want to ask you all a question. What gospel message did you hear and then respond to in your decision to follow him? I was somewhere recently in the last three months and I heard the gospel message preached. I wanted to get saved again. I say this with all humility, it was a man-centered gospel. It was so awesome that I went, man, I want to give my life to that. That is fantastic. Man, that's really going to happen? Just like that? Your time is now. Really? Man, can I get saved all over again, God? See, what gospel message did you come into? Because the gospel message you heard, understood, and accepted, and said, that's what I'm laying my life down for, it'll determine what your life looks like. It'll determine what your devotion to Christ looks like. And I'm going to read you something out of a book that I've been reading at the moment called Radical. I read this to our guys at Ignite. Actually, it's funny, I had a, a text from one of the students and said, this is totally messing with my head um, in a good way. And I'm just going to take a bit of water and I'm going to read a couple of passages. Okay. Jesus didn't die for just you, is the phrase. We live in a church culture that has a dangerous tendency to disconnect the grace of God, grace of God from the glory of God. Our hearts resonate with the idea of enjoying God's grace. We bask in sermons, conferences and books that exalt a grace centering on us. And while the wonder of grace is worthy of our attention, if that grace is disconnected from its purpose, the sad result is a self-centered Christianity that bypasses the heart of God. If you were to ask the average Christian sitting in a worship service on Sunday morning to summarize the message of Christianity, you would most likely hear something along the lines of this. The message of Christianity is that God loves me. Or someone might say, the message of Christianity is that God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. As wonderful as this sentiment sounds, is it biblical? Isn't it incomplete? based on what we have seen in the Bible. God loves me is not the essence of biblical Christianity because if God loves me, the message of Christianity then, sorry, because if God loves me, is the message of Christianity, because if God loves me, is the message of Christianity, then who is the object of Christianity? Does that make sense? God loves me. The message is about me. Christianity's object is me. Subtle, eh? Therefore, when I look for a church, once again, we know the church is God's people, but look at even this and this. I look for music that best fits me and the programs that best cater to me and my family. When I make plans for my life and career, 
It's about what works best for me and my family. When I consider the house I will live in, the car I will drive, the clothes I will wear, the way I live, I will choose according to what is best for me. This is the version of Christianity that largely prevails in our culture. But it is not biblical Christianity. The message of biblical Christianity is not God loves me, period, as if it were the object of our own faith. The message of biblical Christianity is God loves me so that I might make him his ways, his salvation, his glory, his greatness known among all nations. Now God is the object of our faith and Christianity centers around him. We are not the end of the gospel. God is. God centers on himself, even in our salvation. Remember his words in Ezekiel? He saves us, not for our sake, but for the sake of his holy name. We have received salvation so that his name will be proclaimed in all nations. God loves us for his sake in the world. This may come as a shock to us. You mean that God has an ulterior motive in blessing us? We are not the end of his grace? And the answer scripture gives is clear. Indeed, if we are not at the center of his universe, God is at the center of his universe, and everything he does ultimately revolves around him. Hmm. If this is true, we may wonder then, does God make himself, is, sorry, does this make God selfish? How can God's purpose be to exalt himself? This is a good question, and it causes us to pause until we ask the follow-up question. Whom else would we have him exalt? <laughs> At the very moment God exalted someone or something else, he would no longer be the great worthy God of all glory and all the universe, which he is. We must guard against misunderstanding here. The Bible is not saying that God does not love us deeply. On the contrary, we have seen in Scripture a God of unusual, surprising, intimate passion for His people. But that passion does not ultimately center on His people. It centers on His greatness, His goodness, and His glory being known globally among all peoples. And to disconnect God's blessing from God's global purpose is to spiral downward into an unbiblical, self-saturated Christianity that misses the point of God's grace. It's a foundational truth. God creates, blesses, and saves each of us for a radical global purpose. But if we are not careful, we will be tempted to make exceptions. We will be tempted to adopt spiritual smoke screens and embrace national comforts that excuse us from the global plan of Christ. And in the process, we will find ourselves settling for lesser plans that the culture around, um, sorry, that the culture around us and even the church around us deems more admirable, more manageable, and more comfortable. That's pretty hard-hitting, eh? All right, I'm going to give you a little bit more. Can you handle a bit more? Okay, remember this stuff is good stuff. Who we really are, okay? An old preaching professor used to take his students to a cemetery every semester. Standing on the perimeter overlooking scores of headstones, he would ask his students in all sincerity to speak over the graves and call people from the ground to rise up and live. With some embarrassment and an awkward chuckle or two, they would try it. Of course, one by one, they would fail. The professor would then look at his students and remind them of a core truth in the gospel. People are spiritually dead, just as those corpses in the cemetery were physically dead, and only words from God can bring them to spiritual life. This is the reality about humanity. 
We are each born with an evil, God-hating heart. Genesis 8.21 says that every inclination of man's heart is evil from childhood. And Jesus' words in Luke 11.13 assume that we know we are evil. Many people say, well, I've always loved God, but the reality is no one has. We may have loved the God that we made in our own minds, but the God of the Bible we hate. It's pretty strong, eh? In our evil, we rebel against God. Remember, this is pre-Christ. Okay, so when we were born like this, this is the nature. This is why Christ had to come. What you're hearing is the nature of man and the power by Christ was sent to redeem us because of this nature we have. The Bible says none of us are good. Why do you call me good? In our, in our evil, we rebel against God. We take the law of God written in his word and on our hearts and we disobey it. This is the picture of the very first sin in Genesis 3. Even if God has said not to eat from the tree of knowledge, we are going to do it anyway. We spurn our creator's authority over us. God beckons storms, clouds, and they come. He tells the wind to blow and the rain to fall, and they obey immediately. He speaks to the mountains, you go there, and he says to the seas, you stop here, and they do it. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the creator until you get to you and me. We have this audacity to look God in the face and say, no. The gospel confronts us with the hopelessness of our sinful condition. But we don't like that. We see in ourselves in the gospel, so we shrink back from it. We live in a land of self-improvement. Certainly there are steps we can take to make ourselves better. So we modify what the gospel says about us. We are not evil, we think, and certainly not spiritually dead. Haven't you heard of the power of positive thinking? I can become a better me and experience my best life now. That is why God is there to make that happen. My life is not going right, but God loves me and has a plan to fix my life. I simply need to follow certain steps, think certain things, and check off certain boxes, and then I'm good. But our diagnosis of the situation and our, con and our conclusion regarding the solution fit nicely into a culture that exalt exalts self-sufficiency, self-esteem, and self-confidence. We already have a fairly high view of our morality, so when we add a superstitious prayer, a subsequent dose of church attendance, and obedience to some of the Bible, we feel pretty sure that will be right in the end. Note the contrast, however. You diagnose the problem biblically. The modern-day gospel says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for you. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God, dead in your sin, and in your present state of rebellion, you're not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. The former sells books and draws crowds. The latter saves souls. Which is more important? In the gospel, God reveals the depth of our need for him. He shows us that there is absolutely nothing we can do to come to him. We can't manufacture salvation. We can't program it. We can't produce it. We can't initiate it. God has to open our eyes, set us free, overcome our evil, and appease his wrath. He has to come to us. Now we are getting to the beauty of the gospel. Now that's pre-Christ. But what did we acknowledge when we became a follower of Christ? Did we come into a gospel? Because there is a direct correlation between our need for him and why we need him and the outworking of our lives being devoted to him. 
if we see ourselves in our true nature that we are born with, that it separates us from Him. I mean, the, the difference and the gap is massive. And we see ourselves in the full light of that reality. Knowing that, that makes what He did so much more powerful, so much more real. Oh my goodness, you came and I'm in that state. And even though I've turned away from you over and over and over and over and over, and you've given me creation, you've given me a Bible, you've given me a conscience, you've given Christians on the world, you've planted all these communities around the place. Although I turned all those things away, you still came? Who are you? I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's who I am. And I've come that you would know me intimately, purposely, and not only know me, but engage in everything I have for you on this earth, that as a body you would represent me on this planet, literally, and you would have governance from a spiritual dominion, not a political one, a spiritual one, and you would see the kingdom of heaven explode on the earth. My goodness, my kindness, taste and see that the Lord is good. Kindness leads to repentance, coming through the church, the people of Jesus. Is that the gospel message that we bought into? Or was it a man-centered one that says, you know what, he has this beautiful plan, but you don't need to die, just get on board and, you know, you just live for him. And No, there's a death process, there's a, a giving your life over to him for it to come alive. If you lose your life, you would find your life. And Paul says, you know what, I'm afraid that you and I have been led astray from the simplicity of the gospel, of the message. It's the power of salvation to all those who receive it. I'm afraid, I'm afraid that you've been led astray from this intimate knowing and that your life would reflect that reality. These are some of the questions I'm continually asking myself, knowing that I'm a son, knowing that I'm saved. But am I living in all that you have for me, Father? Am I in community? Am I in discipleship? Am I in the very environment that Jesus gave for the transformation? Am I placing myself, submitting myself to other men and women and walking together that I may come into the fullness of, because with all those giftings together, speaking, loving, contending, my reality is going to shift. Or am I just living my life as an individual Christian on this earth and it's me and you, God, and I don't need the body? Do you know how unbiblical that is? So unbiblical, it's not funny. Look at the life of Christ. One on one, one in three and twelve, one in seventy, and, and then he was in the world. That is the environment that we're all to be in. That's where we will come alive. Once again, this is good stuff, good news. Don't hear heavy, hear light. Hear turn to Him and come into the fullness. I've said this before, but do you want to eat lentils or do you want a five-course meal? Whatever you love. There is more, and as we contend together and place ourselves under His Lordship, under the, the way He does things, you and I will experience things 
We rhyme my analogy. Father, jealous for his children to come into everything. He gives it to us in the framework of physical parents as a typology that we can understand it. He's no different on one aspect to what you and I are. You stop and just even grab that for a concept. And I've shared this. That's why marriage, he gives us marriage. Not as an end in itself, but to lead us into a greater marriage with him, a reality of him. He gives it to us as the training ground, the preparation ground to receive something. But we've turned that into an end. He is the end. He is it. And I want to call us as a community to this day. I want to call you now. I'm not going to call you forward. I'm just going to call you now. If the musos can come and just, if there are things that you know. And I'm not talking about stuff you might have looked at at the internet or drink. I'm talking about where your heart's at. If you know your heart is distant today, if you know that the God is calling you or, or inviting you, and I believe He's inviting you right now with the words I'm saying, then just ask Him to forgive you. It's a two-second thing, but say it with all your heart and then say, Father, I want more of you. I'm seeking you. Like I said to you before, He said to the Israelites, if you go here, as soon as you acknowledge this, you come straight back straight back as if you've never been away. So I want to call us as a community to that 28th, 3 p.m. service, where I'm going to blow a shofar. I've been practicing. I'm trying to get about three different tones out of it so it doesn't sound so boring as just one. But, but I want to call us as a community today. Can we come back to even if we don't necessarily think we need to. See, there's real power as well. <laughs> Can I lead us now in that prayer? So however you want to do this, if you want to position yourself and kneel, if you just want to stay